My name is David Miner. I'm an assistant pastor here at Wallace. And uh, Lord willing, uh, you may not hear another sermon from me for quite a few months. Uh, we're hoping that uh, Jamie will be uh, approved for ordination in September. And uh, uh, he'll be preaching next week. And then we have uh, our new senior pastor, um, Ryan Moore, preaching starting at the middle of August the 15th. My text this morning continues the theme that I've been working on the last two sermons, the Holy Spirit. And it's from 2 Corinthians 3, all of the chapter. Hear the word of God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tab tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' feet because of its glory, which was be being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray again. Gracious Father, we're not, I'm not competent 
for this ministry apart from your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the New Covenant, the Spirit that came at Pentecost, the Spirit that it's available to every child of God. Take this scripture, complicated passage as it is, and apply it to the hearts, the well-being, the spiritual well-being of your children right here. Guard my lips, edit my words, and shine through your spirit on the glory of our risen Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. I imagine many of you here are old enough to remember those WWJD bracelets. I'm not going to ask how many of you had them or wore them. What would Jesus do, a bracelet? The thought was a reminder before you speak, think. Would Jesus have spoken the way you just intended to speak? Acted the way that you intend to act? Those bracelets may have something in common with the tassels that God commanded is the Hebrew peoples to wear. Now, I don't imagine there's any WWJD bracelets here this morning. They have their advantage, but they also have their disadvantage. They can promote pride, just like the tassels did. And Jesus warned his disciples not to be like the ostentatious Pharisees who took their tassels and made them long so that everybody could see them. Their spirituality was to be inward. But it's so easy, is it not, to parade our spirituality. Now, the WWJD bracelets, the tassels, they're just part of a huge movement that has expressed itself in many ways in the history of the church. There's this hunger we all have for some special prescription to be more godlike, Christ-like, holy. We want a process defined for us. We want a distinctive solution. We want a self-help manual and how to be a better Christian. Do we not? Go look at your well. It's not easy to send you to a local Christian bookstore anymore to look at the self-help aisles in the local Christian bookstore. But the point is that this has been a yearning throughout the history of the church. Think about the monasticism. Think about the vows of poverty or chastity. Think about the various Aesthetic movements, abstinence movements, the separation. Uh, you could say that the Amish are practicing a whole garment, a whole uh, set of clothing to demonstrate their separateness. Um, 
Some of you, like me, were maybe raised in churches where you just didn't use, or your women didn't use some of these beauty aids, lest they um, not be separate from the people. It's a separate people of God. My point is this. We have a hunger for some special way to please God. And if we can just be told what it is, we'll make some good progress. Wrong. You can't do it on your own. You can't make yourself more holy by trying harder. You can't do what only the Spirit of God can do. So this is my third sermon on the Holy Spirit. The first one, on Pentecost Sunday, I emphasized to you that the law of the Spirit of life has given you freedom over the law of sin and death. You're no longer under the dominion of sin because of what the Spirit is doing in your hearts and lives. Romans 8, verse 2. And then my second sermon on this, in this mini-series, um, which may end today, uh, is um, the Holy Spirit illuminates you to understand the truth about what God in his wisdom has prescribed for saving sinners. The crucified Savior. The one who is the suffering servant. Where did we, un- how is it that we understand that truth? Second Corinthians, or First Corinthians 2, uh, verse 14. We have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. That we might understand the things freely given us by God, we need the Holy Spirit to do that. If you understand them, you've been given the Holy Spirit. You are the recept- You have received the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, who is the Spirit of the New Covenant promise. So this is my third sermon, and, and I'm on this topic, and when, where I'm going is in the last verse that I read, and that is verse 18. And we all, with unveiled faces, no longer do we not see the glory We're being transformed into the same image, the image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to the next. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So I have three points here. First, what is this business about letters of recommendation that the the chapter started with? Second, there's this preoccupation with the word glory. That's my second point. What is, what is glory? And then third, I want to unpack the key text, the 18th verse. So, with respect to letters of recommendation. Now, it appears that the Apostle Paul, who had spent 18 months at Corinth, establishing the church at the end of his second missionary journey, and then he had to leave. He went back to Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
He reported into ascending church, and then he went on his third journey, and here he is, he, he's in Ephesus as he writes the letters to Corinth. And in the meantime in Corinth, there have been people who are not happy with the free gospel message that Paul was preaching. And they come in and they say, you know, you've got some partial understanding of the truth, but there's something that needs to be added to it. And by the way, that guy Paul, you know, he wasn't one of the 12 disciples. Did you, he ever present to you a letter of recommendation? Do you know who he was? Really? Now, if you go into the local pastor's office today in a, lo in, in, in a local church, you will probably see somewhere on the wall a certificate of graduation from seminary. And if you're in a Presbyterian context, you'll probably see a, an ordination document signed by the stated clerk when the guy was ordained. Don't pay too much attention to them. What do you need to do? You need to pay attention to the results of his ministry. And that's what Paul was saying. It's not that I need a letter of recommendation. I've already got them. You are them. In his first letter, and by the way, his first letter, he's got a lot of critique of the way that the Corinthian believers were behaving. Lots and lots of correction. Lots and lots of uh, criticism of them. But listen to one of the things that he writes in that letter of correction. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you... Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's who you are. You were changed. Now, I'm uh, writing this letter because you need some further changing. But the fact is, you're on your way. You're making progress. That's your, our letter of recommendation. And you're a letter that's not written with ink or with a, carved with a, a, a chisel on stone, you're a letter that's written by the Spirit himself on your own heart. Now, what's the apostle doing here? He's reminding them of a very well-known prophecy from the book of Ezekiel, from chapter 36 in Ezekiel. You remember 37 in Ezekiel, the vision of the dry bones that were resurrected? Well, just before that, uh, the valley of dry bones and those, uh, all those dry bones that came alive again, just before that, we get these words where um, Paul says, or, or Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart. 
and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk on my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Corinth was a place well known for its immorality in the ancient world, well known for its uh, focus on the temple worship of, uh, of uh, Venus, well known for its uh, lust for profit. It was a commercial center. Corinth was a place where the spirit of God went under the preaching of the crucified son of God. The preaching of the crucified son of God by the apostle Paul and hearts were changed and people turned to Jesus. And what Paul is saying, you are letters of recommendation for me because Jesus authenticated my preaching ministry among you by sending his spirit into your hearts and leading you to change. Changed, the changed hearts and lives of the people of God are what demonstrate the truth of the gospel. It was not just Ezekiel 36 um, that uh, Paul is referring to. He's also using the word new covenant through here. Uh, he, he says that uh, um, in verse 6, God has made Paul and his associates sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. That, of course, is a reference to Jeremiah chapter 31. So he's conflating those two promises quite appropriately, and he's saying, this has been fulfilled in you. You are walking in the light of the Spirit. Why are you listening to these super apostles? Why are you listening to those who would turn you back to the days of Moses? Why are you listening to those who would take you back to the law? Why are you trying to do on your own, following the prescriptions of the law, what the Spirit is already accomplishing in you. That's my first point. The people of God are letters of recommendation for their leaders, children, for their parents students, for their teachers, members of a local church, for their elders and pastors. My second point, glory. Throughout this passage, Paul keeps using the word glory. Why? Well, we can only surmise it's because his detractors were using the word glory. They were using the word glory because they were trying to point out the splendors of the ancient Hebrew religion, which was not idolatrous like the pagans around. The, the Jews, in their dispersion, had gone throughout the Roman Empire. And by their lives, their ethical lives, 
They were distinctive from the local pagans. And they were attractive. And there were many proselytes. And what these people were trying to do was to take them over back into the trust in the law in order to demonstrate, in order to establish your own righteousness. And Paul's gospel is saying, no, you trust in the crucified Jesus for that. So, in the ancient world, there was a great respect for antiquity. We don't have that now. Uh, we have respect for the future glories of changed, uh, uh, the advances in science and technology. But in the ancient world, they looked to the past as the golden age. And that's what the, apparently the apostles, the, 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 those who succeeded Paul, and uh, Paul calls them super apostles, they were apparently trying to take the uh, Corinthian believers back to that by showing them the glory of the ancient covenant. The, glory, the splendid temple of, of Herod still existed in Jerusalem as these, uh, as these letters were being written. And it was magnificent. It's talked about in the Gospels. Uh, its beauty, its, its magnificence, its glory. But then there were, of course, the renown of the way in which Solomon had an even more magnificent temple. And how the glory cloud of the Spirit of God had come upon the tabernacle in the wilderness and filled it so that the priests couldn't do their work and the same thing happened to Solomon's temple. They were, undoubtedly, they were trying to take the Corinthian believers back to those days and to, and to extol the glories of the Mosaic Covenant in comparison with this new sect that emphasized the work of the Lord Jesus. So, we see the word glory throughout. Now, what is glory? That's what I want to really zero in on in my second point here. What is glory? It comes from a Hebrew word meaning to uh, weight, physical weight or significance. In, in, a, in a culture where food is scarce, and people are hungry, somebody who's full regularly and puts on a few extra pounds obviously has standing, resources, and is to be respected. Weight hasn't always had its significance that it has in our culture. And, but weight goes all past that. Glory goes past just weight. It goes to the point where there's a kind of uh, expression of the character. In fact, this is my definition for you for glory. Glory is the manifestation of the character. It's the expression of the properties of whatever is looking glorious, whether it's the monarchy in Great Britain, you know, the pomp and circumstance, the parades, the big palaces, all of that stuff. That's the glory. What's it doing? Well, it's pointing to the significance of the history and, and so forth. At this point, mostly history. Didn't used to be that way. 
the manifestation of the character. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. What is it the heavens are declaring? His power, his wisdom, his faithfulness. You know, the sun rises every day, the moon comes out, the sun sets, we have rest, and we go and then we go back to work when the sun comes out again. There is the character of God written in the skies and the handiwork on the earth also points to his wisdom. Science is worth studying. Science gives us a, an insight into the handiwork of our almighty and wise and gracious and loving God. Glory is the manifestation of the character of God. Moses said to God, there on the mountain. On the mountain, um, Moses had received the law. And then he'd got, taken the tablets of the Ten Commandments and he'd gone down, he was on his way down the mountain and he saw the people already worshipping the golden calf. And he had a temper tantrum. And he threw down the tablets of stone so that they were shattered. And then he went back up to see God again. He was going to be given new tablets but he was also given this horrifying word from God. I will not go with you and your people in the wilderness. I'll send an angel to do it. I'll get you out of here, but I'm not going to be there. And I'm not going to be there because you, your people are so stiff-necked. And Moses did something remarkable. He said to God, it's precisely because the people are so stiff-necked and rebellious that you need to go with us. Don't send an angel. You go with us. And you know what God did? He said, I'll do what you said. God answered Moses' prayer. And Moses undoubtedly was overwhelmed. And so what did he say? Show me your glory. God, show me your glory. And of course, you know the story. God says, you can't see my glory and live, but I'll put you in a little cave and I'll let my glory pass by and you can sort of peek out and see the after effect. But you know what then happened? God didn't just let him see the after effect. He also spoke. The Lord passed before Moses and said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and covenant faithful and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He describes himself. 
Moses asked to see him, his glory, and God describes himself. And how does he describe himself? With his magnificent power in creating the heavens? His wisdom in ordering all of the cosmos? No. He describes himself in his glory in the context of being gracious and merciful. So, when we get to the New Testament and we have John, the apostle, writing a gospel and he writes a prologue first and he's, he understands that this Jesus was the eternal son of God, the word that was with God, the word that was God, the word by whom all things were made. And he says, that word became flesh and tinted amongst us, like the presence of God in the tabernacle. God tinted amongst the people in answer to Moses' prayer. And the Son of God tinted amongst the people there. And what did the disciples see? His glory. Full of what? Grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Moses had God describe himself as one of steadfast love and faithfulness. I'm planning to ask Jamie, do you agree with me, Jamie? that grace is a New Testament word for steadfast love or hesed and truth or uh, is the New Testament word for the Hebrew faithfulness emet. I think probably that's what we're to look at. Those two phrases, steadfast love and faithfulness are celebrated through the rest of the Old Testament. And when we get to the New Testament, there they are too. That's glory. Now I come to my third point here. Third point is to unpack verse 18. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to the another, to the next, from glory to glory, literally. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Notice the subject. Pardon me if this sounds like a grammar class. The subject, we all. Paul is including these recalcitrant, troublesome, stubborn Corinthian believers with himself in this subject. We all, we all are what? We all, if you look down a little bit, are being transformed. We're being changed. This is passive. It's not our doing. It's the doing of somebody else, something else. We're being transformed. 
We're being transformed, we're being changed. It's the same word that's used in, for, in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. And we're being transformed by the Spirit. And how is it that's happened? Well, now I go back to the clauses that define the subject. We all, with unveiled faces, Clearly, this is a reference back to the way that Moses had to veil his face because the glory of the Lord shone from him because he'd been with God and the people couldn't handle. So it was either Moses put a veil over his face so that they, uh, they wouldn't be overwhelmed by what Moses looked like or they put a veil over their faces but then, of course, uh, that's problematic because everybody's got to be veiled. Um, so, uh, what Paul is saying here is that we all no longer have the veil on us. The glory now is resident in Jesus, the suffering servant. We've seen his glory. We've understood that he went to the cross as God's command, according to God's wise plan for our salvation. We've seen that. We've understood it. The veil that made us uh, turn away from the suffering servant has been removed. We've seen the glory that is in Jesus. So we all, with unveiled faces, we're beholding this glory. We're looking at the glory of the Savior. The glory of the Savior as it's portrayed in the four Gospels. The glory of the Savior as it continues in the work he continues to do in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. The glory of the Savior in changing lives now. We behold that glory, we recognize it for what it is, as a revelation of the character of God. The character of God. The meekness. Coupled with the majesty, the humility, coupled with the authority. Read the Gospels and see how Jesus spoke with such wisdom with such authority with such power how his words would cast out demons how his words would silence the thunder and the roll the waves you see the glory of jesus if you're a child of god you see it and that vision of the glory of God is the context in which the Spirit transforms you. Don't seek a special prescription in order to be a better Christian. Look at Jesus. That's what this text is saying. Look at the glories of Jesus. And that's the means by which the Spirit of God, as the Spirit comes in the new covenant, 
The promised spirit who comes to do his good work in the people of God, changing their hearts so that the law of God is now written on their hearts, changing them from one degree of glory to another. That, friends, is how the spirit changes us by looking at the glories of Christ. Adam was made in the image of God, image and likeness of God, but Adam sinned. And he distorted that image and that likeness. And we inherit that distortion and we continue the process of distorting that likeness in the way that we behave. Jesus, the second Adam, came in the image of God. The word made flesh. He came and he obeyed. He went to the cross. The cross was the hour of his glorification. The cross was the primary way in which the character of God is writ large for the people of God. Just before the upper room, there in that last week, there were some Greeks that wanted to come and meet Jesus. And they went to Andrew and they asked Andrew, um, well, they went to Philip, and they asked Philip to show him Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus. Before I became a pastor, I was at a presbytery meeting. I happened to be the moderator of the presbytery, and I was up in front of a, an Orthodox Presbyterian church, and I noted on the pulpit, Sirs, we wish to see Jesus. Sirs, we would see Jesus. Later when I became a pastor, I had that put on my pulpit. Show people Jesus. That's how the Spirit changes them. But I got distracted from where I was going in this text. Sir, we would see Jesus. And they go to Jesus. Uh, Philip goes to Jesus. And Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. All through John's Gospel, his hour is not yet come, his hour is not yet come, his hour is not yet come. And now, as these Greeks come and want to see Jesus, he says, the hour has come. And what was that hour? The hour of trial, of, of, of rest, of trial, of crucifixion and the following resurrection. That was the glorification of the Lord Jesus in his atoning work, in his obedience as suffering servants to what the, his father prescribed. He displayed the glory preeminently. But that glory, that humility, that obedience, that meekness, 
He wants to pass that on to you. If you're in Christ Jesus as your Lord. He will, by the power of the Spirit, pass it on to you. As you let him. Is this your inheritance? Do you have this hope? The hope of glory. Do you see it already taking place now? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for sending your spirit in obedience, in accord with your promise to Ezekiel and to Jeremiah. And there was the glory of Pentecost as boldness was granted to those weak, trembling disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that boldness translated into action and the Spirit changed the hearts of Corinthians, of all people, so that there was a church that professed the name of Jesus in Corinth. Thank you that there's a church here in College Park that professes the name of Jesus. And your Spirit is at work in the hearts of believers still today. And as we go shortly to the table of our Lord, show us the beauty of our Lord and may our hearts be changed as we behold his glory and what he's done for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.